0: Welcome to the bio breakdown podcast i'm your host chris Banity uh this week we are joined by producer max I guess. who is filling in as co-host as randall could not join us today he's too busy making money moves hashtag money moves we are joined by special guest brandon Mayer. this is a recording months in the making almost a year at this point actually probably because we had interviewed him last year and that recording was lost in a (laughs) hardware failure so welcome back brandon welcome to the show
1: howdy howdy.
2: round two i can't wait
0: (laughs) we are just the consummate professionals over here glad to have you back though So the the point of the show, uh, you know, hey, if you're tuning in, this is probably not your first episode, but if this happens to be your first episode, the point of this show is to uh, kind of make science accessible and digestible for everyday people and to talk about research in a way that's approachable for everybody, including non-scientists, but you will be hearing direct from researchers uh what did we say researchers authors and professionals that was aspirational but here we are today with the researcher and uh we also want to teach people kind of the steps you can take to get yourself involved in science so just to rehash kind of the purpose of the show well brandon again welcome to bio breakdown tell us a little bit about yourself where you're from uh a little bit about what you're working on not too deep because we'll get into that as we progress and then just kind of how you became interested in science and biology, ecology, that kind of thing.
1: All right, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, I guess to start out where I'm from, I'm from one of the dingy suburbs of Phoenix, which uh, regardless of whether or not you live in Phoenix or don't live in Phoenix, you know, it's a butt of a lot of jokes and it's not the greatest of places. I grew up in Phoenix, yeah, 18, 19-ish, then I left to go to college where I went to Tucson for uh, the University of Arizona. At the university, I pursued a pre-veterinary science degree, finished that, and then I came back for natural resources and uh, finished natural resource degree uh, with wildlife emphasis and then I ended up working well, after a stat working for a nonprofit I came back and uh, worked for a corporate extension range cooperative extension for now I do research for them.
0: Okay there's there's a lot to dive in uh, dive into with that, uh, and you know, because we do reach an international audience I think we should explain that phoenix Arizona is in the desert, uh, it is a city of nice people sure but it's a godforsaken place and uh
1: sh- <laughs> is a great word for that place i don't want to like you know really you know put down people like the phoenicians i don't want to put down the phoenicians yeah you know, it's a place that's what it is it's mm. a hell of a place with people who are hell of people but that's that's what it is it, it, it is what it is yeah there's some oh. good people there i'm not gonna say there's not it's just that uh growing up there you realize that uh population that that the population size that makes a phoenix makes it a rough place to live and uh it's it's nice to leave and go and uh, check out other places in in the u.s you know if not internationally the
0: the whole the whole building a city in the desert thing uh is uh something i've always been a little bit skeptical of but I can imagine uh, growing up in the desert gives you kind of a unique perspective on the natural world. So were you like interested as a kid in exploring the desert? Were you like a little desert rat as a child? <clears throat> or did uh, did you only become more interested in, in science and, and biology and stuff as an adult or young young adult? Well,
1: I would say Phoenix isn't really okay. Nowadays, uh, I feel like people do go out. They do hikes. We have a bunch of state-run parks, a bunch of areas around Phoenix that are very welcoming and great places to go do hikes. But when I was young, I, I didn't get an opportunity to explore the desert, as you would put it. There was no running around, looking at stuff in the desert. Uh, more or less, it's like you you know you go to school, you stay indoors, and you avoid the heat. Uh, I was in Boy Scouts. And I do attribute a lot of what I am today as a product of what I did in Boy Scouts. And that's mostly like having the opportunity just to go hike, which you'd think, oh yeah, you're in the middle of nowhere, you probably go and venture new, check out new places. But the only way to get out of Phoenix was through Boy Scouts. So we'd go camp, we'd go hike, we go, we'd do like various trips all across Arizona, and that was literally the only out. there was no other way. So I attributed a, a good start of my interest in the natural world to that, uh, but I really don't, I, I think that was more of just like filling the void at the time. I, a lot of what I, of what made me more interested in this, but, you know, everything around us is it came a lot later In my life like way way later like in college it came a lot of a huge portion of my life went by where i didn't really care to reflect on any aspect of the environment
0: (laughs) yeah so uh that's interesting i think that's the the first person we've had on that wasn't just kind of a a child of nature so to speak you know but uh i think that also probably i mean Obviously, I'm speculating here. I have not lived your life, uh, so I'm not pretending to be. But I think, you know, perhaps growing up in an urban center, such as you did, uh, may have influenced that. Um, would you agree with that, or would you say that's inaccurate? Yeah, no, I, I think like just opportunity wise.
1: Like, mm-hmm. I don't think that a lot of, I mean, if I want to uh, make a more generalization, I think a lot of students that went to the schools that I went to had the opportunity. To do stuff like this, uh, suburbs aren't really like the "hey, let's get out of town" demographic. They, I mean, like, they might go camping once in a blue moon, but it's not solely focused on the outdoors. I, like I said, it, it just—you don't have a community that supports it. It's hard to, to like, you know, start or foster that interest early. And I didn't have a community that supported it.
0: Okay, that's, I think that's important to point out. Um, Like I said, so oftentimes the other guests that we've had on um, will say, you know, it's a family member, whether it's their parents or a grandfather um, that got them kind of outside fishing, hiking, that kind of thing, which got them uh, most interested. But I mean, that is just, you know, family is just like the first level of community and, you know, community as we're talking about now with you uh, is a little bit expanded beyond that, but it totally makes sense that if you don't have a community or you don't have these opportunities, um, you're not gonna be interested in the natural world so much. Uh, so I guess that at begs the question, um how did you get where you are in terms of working on natural resources stuff and you had mentioned previously um that you had pursued a a veterinary degree uh could you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah so well earlier talked about like like what might have been this corridor that might have got you into wanting to explore the world uh Pains me to say it, and I think I regretted saying it last time. But mostly cartoons, mostly TV, uh, mostly like things that showed me something that I I'd never get to see. That's what, like me wondering more about those worlds made me interested in natural environment, interested in the wildlife. But at the time, the wildlife was the key part. I was like, I was interested in all the kind all the critters. That was the interesting part and that was tv that was just what i could see on tv but you know, whether it was cartoons uh you know he could name off a crap ton of, of i guess you could say actors or activists that's better better word that were all inspirations but when i first finished high school uh i wanted to work with animals but that was a very general topic so you you're a kid and you're like i like animals and then your parents look at you and go what does (laughs) that mean that's the thing they don't really understand that and like for most parents it's like it's a a concept of security they want their offspring their child to go on live the life that makes them happy and for them that immediately was like veterinarian you like animals you know what that means it means you want to make money as a veterinarian there was no real thought or discussion. And they basically were like, this is the direction you should move. If you're, mm-hmm. working, you're interested in moving in a direction, boom, make money as a veterinarian. I didn't you know, I, I was like, you know, down Little Me, all I see is things I see on TV. I don't know how to structure the world around me. All I know is that, oh, that's how I go. I'll believe my parents. I went, I got into University of Arizona and you start out on the pre veterinarian. Sort of course and i you know, i took classes uh that gave me that background and you know it was a good collection of classes but never felt really right i actually didn't do too well uh, i had i ended up dropping out and then coming back and finishing uh for a total of five years you know and a lot of that might have been a product of me not really knowing what i'm doing you know I, it's like a lot of people coming into College are just sort of like, here's your avenue, just go to college. But it, it's a tree it explodes. There's mm-hmm. so many directions you could possibly go. You can go more focus on earth sciences, you can more focus on management, you can go more focused on peer research, you can go in a variety of directions. It's uh, <laughs> throwing them into it. You like animals, go be a veterinarian. But that doesn't solve a lot, of, it doesn't help them, it doesn't give them actual direction. So, i did pre-veterinary uh i finished and started working as a vet assistant and it was not enjoyable i did not enjoy one bit of that which started i guess you could say an early onset existential crisis where i was like why what why do i exist what am i uh that led to a lot of reflection and I, i thought. You know, screw this. I'm just going to Google things. I'll take it into my own hands. I started uh, volunteering at various places. I volunteered at the uh, uh, Tucson Wildlife Rehab Center. I volunteered at the Reid Park Zoo. I volunteered at the uh, uh, Desert Museum, and all those places gave me completely different insights. Uh, And that sort of shaped me into like I should go back to school. And then I went to school. Natural resource, wildlife, and, and that sort of set me on a better trajectory to what I wanted to do. Yeah,
0: I think, uh, I think that is a really common for uh, problem for people just in general. The college part, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I mean, I also as a kid got that. Oh, you love animals, you should be a vet, you know. And I think that's a really common thing. And I think you're absolutely right. It comes from just like. Not not really understanding what the opportunities are, um, you know. Pop culture, you think help animals. You think like okay, vets, uh, rescues, and then like <clears throat> this abstract concept. <clears throat> sorry, I have a sore throat. This abstract concept of just wildlife is out there. Uh, you know, oil spills happen. You know, you get all those kind of like exotic adventure type help animals, um, ideas. I think those are kind of a lot more common than they should be in like the public perception. But yeah, that's, absolutely. It's a good point because like
1: that's the public perception is there's not a lot of understanding into what goes into the management of our our public or just natural lands. But there's mm-hmm. a ton. We have agencies that cover all, all aspects of, of use or how we describe it in the US use, Uh, but like, there's so much. Yeah, you know, you can work for a rehab, you can work for any of these sort of groups that might go out there and and stop a big problem like an oil spill, but there's groups who are constantly working every day to make sure that they can try to keep things in some sort of balance all around you every day. That's what they're working for. And it's directly helping you, which I think is largely (laughs) <laughs> sort of depressing when you ask a parent what should I be I like animals and they'd be like oh be a veterinarian don't 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 even think about anything else just be a veterinarian yeah
2: <laughs> um one of the things that you would have to do that you know when you're a teenager you wouldn't really consider like all the negative you know vet tech such as like having to put an animal down or getting a fixing a cat for someone or dog that matter like that's not a fun activity for the dog or cat in question or the person performing that procedure like so Mm. personally me like i could never be of that tech i'm not that strong of a person (laughs) i
1: i I agree with that because like well two aspects i i they don't really know what they're losing the the wildlife and i feel like that's sort of a like a problem of of society and how we should approach recognizing having these domesticated species in our our lives but uh when it comes to the person who has to be there i mean i've i i still remember uh the amount of cats and dogs i helps put down because what job is there for a vet tech aside from hold the animal while it stops living
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and you're like
1: oh cool i can go through like 50 of these i'm Mm -hmm. done that's and, and it's, it's tough. It's like really hard. And I, I imagine that these vet technicians, these veterinarians who go through this, they are incredibly hard individuals. And I and I respect their ability to do that, but it's also something that I, I wish they didn't have to go through. It's mm-hmm. not something I could keep doing. It's difficult. difficult. It definitely, uh, definitely dated my perception of. of
0: life from a wildlife perspective since then right i think um you know i don't know the exact numbers but i think uh like veterinary medicine is one of the fields with like the highest suicide rates of the practitioners which is really unfortunate again i mean oftentimes the, the the people that go into that profession of course like want to help they want to make a difference they really do care about animals Um, and then to just be isolated in this abstract world where you are responsible for far more you know euthanasians than anything else probably you know I think uh, that as a as a kid I I quickly learned that um, not necessarily like the whole the problem but having gone to the vet to like put dogs to sleep and, and realizing that, like, should I pursue being a vet, I'd end up uh, doing surgeries, cutting animals open. Sometimes they wouldn't make it. Sometimes there's nothing you could do. And then you're going to be there when they die. So, (laughs) I mean, that's not really funny, but yeah.
1: But I mean, even then, like, they're, they're, they're doing a proper service. Yes. I like just sort of be like, this is a, a tragedy. No, I, it sucks the way that they have to sort of protect themselves from doing something like this over and over again. They sort of put up a wall in a way that that does suck, but they are doing good work because if, if it wasn't for them, then a lot of animals would just, just stop existing. They live a tortured life until the end. Uh, yeah, that's it, very true. You yeah. do a great service, but it's not the direction that I chose to take in, in the I, I was more drawn to, uh, I was more drawn to questions about behavior. In the end, I, I was more curious why, and I had, I had a lot of desire to be more focused on like that human animal interaction. Uh, to sort of, if, if anything, the misunderstandings of, of or the the conflicts uh, that can arise from wildlife and our normal human use of the land. And like that drew me away. That was a, a bigger draw. And you know, as soon as I figured out, because this is like another thing, like, I didn't even know this existed. My parents, like, there was just veterinary school, good luck. And then I finished veterinary school and then I find out a year afterwards, working for, you know, volunteering at this rehab uh, uh, center that there's an entirely different degree. I didn't even know about, so there's, at the University of Arizona, there's like two wildlifey sort of focus degrees. There's the ecology and evolutionary biology, and then there's uh, uh, natural resources with an emphasis in wildlife. Uh, and I had no idea that either was existed, and I found out that the natural resource side existed, and I was like, "Whoa, what is this?" And so I jumped on it. I, I I didn't think that I could just go to school because you could imagine deciding, oh, yeah, I'm going to do a whole nother degree and spend a whole nother degrees worth of money on something. So I, I didn't think that I could do that. So my basic idea was I could go to school as a non-degree-seeking grad student, uh, get a few classes under, like, under my wing, and then I could use those as leverage to get a, a job as like, a technician or something like that. And that was the main gist. I was just like, that's all I need to do. And so that's why I ran away. I was like, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna do this anymore. I'm sorry. I'm gonna be poor for longer,
0: and I'm gonna do this. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. And I think that's you know, um, I think you should expand on that a little bit because I think a lot of people might not be aware that that's even an option. The whole non-degree-seeking graduate student um, kind of track. Well, see, I don't,
1: I don't necessarily know much benefit for the non-degree thing track aside from trying to attain a few extra classes. Mm-hmm. So you're able to attend school, hey everybody, you're able to attend school and not get a degree. You don't have to. You can take classes. Of course you, you're still gonna pay the same premium to to attend those classes as everybody else. That's there's no difference unless you manage to work for a university and you can get discounts to the university, but you don't have to do, get a degree, but that allows you to, to get to pick and choose the few classes you can take, but it's just expensive. And mm-hmm. I, I thought, sure, I'll do it. All I need is a year. That's what my thought process was. I've already wasted five years. What's an extra year to add on to that uh, That really deep bucket of, 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 <laughs> of, of debt? <laughs> so I was like, fine, yeah, let's just do it. And uh, so yeah jumped on it, and, and I was able to take some classes, but I was able to learn a lot of stuff about an entire world that I never even thought I would have learned. You learn it from the people, you learn it from the classes, you learn it from the, the, the faculty and the staff. I learned that so much more existed, and then I learned that, uh, you know, from talking to advisors that I could just take all my gen eds and apply them, and since I'd already gone to a year of school. If I add one more year to that, I can have a second degree, and that's when everything changed. I was like, "Oh, so I've already decided to commit a year. Well, I'll do another because because one drop in the bucket, one, <laughs> two two three drops in the bucket. Who cares?" <laughs> so then I committed to it and got the and then got the full undergrad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, like, yeah, there is there is more you can do. Uh, I, I just can't recommend it unless you. It's a very specific very specific on when you should recommend doing your your non-degree scheme if you have the opportunity do it without a doubt don't think about it just take some classes if they're cheap if you're working at a university there's no reason not to take more classes take one it's a couple hundred bucks mm-hmm. and that, that, that's very privileged of me to just throw away a couple hundred bucks but uh uh it's i think it's it's more than worth
0: $200, $200. right and i think more, more than anything it just shows that there you know there's a path for anybody right sometimes you got to make it but there's a path there for anybody so you saw you know you saw an opportunity that was right for you that might not be appropriate for many many other people but it was right for you and you pursued it you kicked that door in and you found the path that worked for you and so like i said you know uh We want to get people more involved in science and just showing that there's a path for everybody that wants it uh, i think is important Um, so when you chose so in that non-degree seeking graduate student you were able to get a natural resources undergraduate degree
1: so yeah i was well i was able to get classes for that first semester it was just loosely picking and choosing the next semester is when is when I started choosing classes, and then someone told me, "No, do just get a whole degree." And then I started shaping things more with I Originally, I had taken the class, taken the majority of the classes that focused on animal behavior and ethology. I think that was the, the main focus because I, I was interested in in behavior and, and like how how I could potentially do that that work in the field. So I thought. I uh, choose those two or those few because there's a couple and then see how how that would work out mm-hmm. but then, yeah i just chose them and i didn't have any help you just you just like find what you think you, i thought would fit uh at least fit when you told somebody, somebody you took the, the class, class. <laughs> <laughs> and hoped that it would work out of course it ended up working out be more likely because i committed more to a larger program but Uh, It didn't, they all sort of fit into my my second degree
0: easy. Okay. And then from there, uh, were you kind of looking to get into research or how did that come about? Well,
1: the reason I went to the 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 non-degree seeking graduate stuff was because I just was desperately trying to find work. That's what I was focused on. I wanted to find more work. Uh uh when I got through my undergrad, that was, you know, another thing, you know, we talk about sort of the avenues that you should take when you're doing these things. And another aspect is you should you know, focusing in your classes is good. You the bare minimum is you should do good in school, fine. But the you know, you should also volunteer literally everywhere. And so i I spent a lot of time doing internships over the summer uh and you know another thing is like for me it's a little bit different i went through my first undergrad i realized how easy it is to be a piece of crap and how how easy it is to try to float through school and not care and just be like oh i can treat this like high school and just move on and then get a job and not think about it it's very easy to do that but when you drop out and you fail that Was a big eye opener, and then I had to come back and then sort of pick myself up and relearn a lot of habits. All those habits carried over when I came back for the second degree, and that really helped me. I was able to volunteer literally everywhere I could because I didn't have the fear of asking if I could, I didn't have the worry of when I could, you know, work for a lab. And a big thing is, you know, especially in, in our field, the natural resource field, I, I don't know much about a lot of others, natural resources, uh, maybe environmental sciences. Uh, the best approach is to try to be, to try to find as many opportunities as possible. And it really doesn't matter if you succeed or fail them. It just matters if you get into them and you work your best uh, and that's, that's it. So I did that. I, you know, that's one thing I learned from failing at my previous degree is that uh, I need to be a part of everything uh and i need to put my best foot forward for everything and then i
0: need to figure out out of all those things that
1: i volunteered for, or interned for that i can that that i find what i want because it's, it's not as easy it's, it's like i mentioned i think earlier talking about this like it's a it, it explodes the opportunities explode you can come into this degree yeah, what is natural resources that's one thing but like the natural world has so many entomology etiology you can study earth sciences watersheds soils like all over the place there's so much to choose from especially in our field and you want to be a specialist in something and now you got to figure out what you're going to be a specialist i knew you came in a little bit biased i want to work with mammals uh or birds and i want to work with behavior and that I mean, so that drive to work with behavior is what sort of shaped my research perspective. But that you know, that came because I didn't have anything and I was desperate trying to get something based off of my experience at Zoos. I was interested in behavior. But like if you're coming in just straight up, you should try everything and figure out what aspects you want, which ones you enjoy the most, which you cling on to the most. And that like is a really important thing that I feel like a lot of People miss when they come into school. They just sort of come in, take their classes, and they leave. But they leave with almost nothing but a bunch of raw information, no passion attached to any of it.
0: Right. I, I cannot re, uh, reiterate enough. Just kind of, you know, if you if you're interested in pursuing some kind of research, or you think that there might be a possibility, uh, there are opportunities all around you um whether that's within whatever institution that you are going to school at or in your local community and sure you might not love it but learning that you don't love it is almost as important as finding the right thing right because everything you figure out you don't want to do can help funnel you in a direction that is is fulfilling to you um and i think that kind of like you kind of mentioned like Going to school, being a graduate student, and like kind of getting a greater understanding of how academia and the world that surrounds academia kind of functions is very important as well. Because, as you said, like, you know, you could get a 4.0 GPA and be the teacher's pet in all of your classes. But if you don't have that practical experience, if you don't, if you haven't built a reputation that you're a hard worker, you really understand um, research, how that works, like you are emotionally attached to the projects that you're choosing to pursue, um, you're not gonna be as necessarily as attractive to the opportunities that you really wanna pursue in the future. You know, it's, it's kind of a investment in the present for future payoff, hopefully, and uh, really building that kind of reputation as well. Yeah, and that's
1: that's what I've heard from the majority of people who hire people.
0: Mm-hmm. We can sit there
1: and be like, oh yeah, you have great grades. But that's the same thing I said, that's the standard. You should just have great grades. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares if you have great grades. They expect you to. Like if they're looking at a a spreadsheet of who to choose from, they've already filtered out the A's and maybe some, the, the B's are the second category, but they're, they're just like, they filter them out. They already did. Like, it sucks to just sort of say like, oh, no, whatever. Uh, and they might, but then again, <laughs> saying that, like, that's one aspect of it. They, they'll filter them all out, but they also, they, they'll almost more, more than half the time, they'll want to see that you have field experience. If you wanna do field work, if you wanna be a part of something, if you wanna work for a state agency, if you wanna work for a federal agency, uh, I can't speak much for nonprofits, or I'm assuming consulting firms probably also have the same sort of perspective, but if they're hiring, they wanna know that they can trust that you can go out there and not uh, not be in danger, not be a risk. Uh, and that's a huge part. They wanna know that you can go out there and like you've already shown like, oh yeah, I've. I worked for this lab and I spent this much time in the fields with like, two other people. Fine. And then they see that and they go, oh, cool. So that could be a check mark. That might be the first thing. Who here has any field work at all? And then that would be the first filter uh, moving on to whether or not they want to hire you. Who here next has good grades?
0: Right. Um, to- I, yeah. I, I agree. I would argue that that what, a, what kind of practical experience you have is weighted above like grades. Like in my undergrad, um, you know, I was on academic probation my first semester. Um, You know, they were threatening to take away my scholarship because I had struggles with chemistry and, you know, I had no idea how to study because I've never studied in my life. But, you know, committing to all of them telling you, like you can just get through high school doing nothing. (laughs) (laughs) You go to college and you're like,
1: oh, I have to learn?
0: Oh no, (laughs) but it's, but it's those like practical work experiences and then networking that really gets you where you want to go. And I think you're exactly right to say it's almost a filtering effect, right? Because, you know, plenty of anybody can come up with an excuse of why they didn't pursue research in a lab or whatever. And sometimes it's a valid reason. It's not an excuse, but everybody could do those things you know again whether it's at your your university a zoo a wildlife rehab uh, you know there's opportunities all over the place but uh, moving on I guess you you mentioned you really wanted to pursue something um, behavior oriented Um, could you talk about what kind of behaviors you thought were most interesting and like and not necessarily zeroing in on that, but how that got you to what you're working on now. And, and then we can t- kind of talk about what you are working on, I guess.
1: Yeah, okay, sure. Uh, well, I think like, it's weird. Uh, so my second degree, I had a minor in psychology. So I was also really curious, like sort of that, it's a lot of work that's done on humans. You know, no kidding. Like, we have tons of humans around us from a teacher to do research on them uh, than an animal in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but I was interested in a lot of why questions. Like, why would we do this? Why would I do that? Why would I do that? And from an animal perspective, I was curious about those things. I took a lot of classes that were focusing on that perspective, the behavioralism sort of perspective on why we act in the way we do. So when I was first doing that undergrad, I was interested a lot of those questions. Why, what sort of, what are these sort of invisible barriers that just sort of like buffer our mental movements in certain directions, those types of things. Whether or not it's a physical constraint or whether or not it's a mental constraint that's constrained by your physical. <laughs> but what things could constrain movement or like why they existed the way it did, what things could create like i mentioned earlier these conflicts between humans because a lot of it's not like you know the animals are evil they're not trying to hurt humans in, in the cases that they do like whether or not it's a coyote eating someone's pet dog or it's a bird an owl flying away with one or whether or not it's a pest animal like an insect or whatever yeah, a lot of times it's just some signal that just happens to make things messy like we we're, you know humans are the Apex ecosystem engineer. So, when we do stuff, we create new opportunities for things to be just sort of misguided for signals to mix, and then it creates problems. So, if we're interested in that. And I was also interested partly in, in training as well. So, just sort of like figuring out the rules mm-hmm. revolving around training. Of course, none of that actually played into the work I did afterwards. So, I, after I finished the degree, I um, ended up going and working for a nonprofit. Well, non-profit saying, I want to keep the nonprofit the same. I no interest in that. Uh, I wasn't, I had a it wasn't the nonprofit work didn't work out too well, and I came back and ended up working for the, the uh, uh, for the university. When I was in an undergrad, uh, I had been very interested in, like I mentioned, these signals. What sort of aspects of the environment cause or induced a reaction from wildlife to do certain things, and I might basic consensus is like oh it's gonna be a product of the environment it's gonna be a product of the product of the structure of the environment that's gonna a, set this playing ground for everything like whether you know temperature uh whatever constraints and how much precipitation all these little, these little tiny things they build up and that's what's gonna uh that's what's gonna shape whether or not an animal is going to do something and from that I was like okay cool well, how do I get more of a background in that and yeah, I looked into the various uh, labs and the one I latched on to was um, it was a lab that was a cooperative extension up here and uh, most of their focus was all on rangelands and. Uh, I think I latched on to them mostly because they had. Less, I wouldn't say less of a question-based approach, but they had a, a, an approach that was more focused incredibly holistically, like all aspects. So they weren't just looking at tiny pieces and trying to look at like questions, whether or not, they were looking at every aspect. And their main view was like, how do we relay this in a way that is important to somebody else? And how do we connect all this, these thoughts? How can we make this useful to a person who doesn't have a background in all this this, this stuff? And that sort of I last over there? I got a, a good background in uh, identifying plants. I got a good background in sort of trying to monitor or inventory like uh, just sort of just the landscapes in the Southwest. Uh, and I did I did a bunch of that work. And they were uh, because of my also I did some work working with the uh, New Mexico Meadow Jumping Mouse for Arizona Game Fish. Combined with also my background doing camera traps, just want to really quickly note I've done a lot of stuff, which is also a good reason why you should try everything because eventually it might just all work together. This happened to work together really well. My background in plants and background in the shummy mouse species, uh, and my background in um my background in uh, in um in camera trapping. So I led them to be interested in hiring me for a position working with them, so that that created what I do now. I, I, I didn't really go hunting for it. I more of took advantage of an opportunity to to learn more about, about what I wanted to learn. Uh, they wanted me to assess research use in very particular locations. And These locations happen to be habitat for the domesticated. They wanted to see, like, for that year, who was using the most uh, of that particular spot, whether or not the uh, greatest amount of use was a product of elk or horses or cattle. They wanted to know who was using the most. And so I was hired to to, to assist in trying to assess that. Um, um, yeah. So, like, that's what I mean. I, I, it's like really weird, because you go into it, you start out with this goal, like, oh, I want to study behavior, I want to do these things specifically, uh, but you don't really know where you're gonna going to go. going, I feel like that's sort of like a, a red herring of life, where we just sort of think that, that if we just push ourselves in a certain direction, this is where we're going to go. You can, <laughs> and more or less, you're probably not going to be as happy as if you had just uh, like found out more opportunities and then took advantage of those opportunities to grow where you wanted to grow. Uh, yeah, and I I, uh, I just asked this question, I had a student work with me and they were asking like, why would you be in this rangeland program? Why would you be doing this stuff if you don't, if your interest isn't in necessarily purely rangeland? And it's a big thing It's like, I. I don't think it, that there's lines drawn between them all. Research is research, but now you have the the know-how, the background to perform research. You can practice that literally anywhere with any any focal species, any focal topic. You can practice research, and I feel like that's something that's sort of largely ignored. like you get stuck in one spot, you're doomed to be that one spot. Like no, you need to. You can. You can drive yourself in a direction until you get out to a place that is what you want to do because you're trying to create more mm-hmm. opportunities and that's that's the direction i think education should really sort of sort of approach is that education education gives you an opportunity the freedom to find more opportunities and those opportunities are what are going to make you happier or not and if you don't approach trying to find more opportunities, trying to, to, if you're not interested in, you might not be interested in in, in, uh, getting up another higher education and that's fine, I guess, but like still like trying to find those opportunities, I think is the the greatest aspect you can want because you'll have an opportunity to choose. You'll be able to look for what you want to do and shape your life in in a direction you want. And that comes with you having a good background in
0: something, whether or not it's what you
1: want it to be, (laughs)
0: <laughs> right presum- yeah yeah so <clears throat> i guess uh it's kind of i i agree I, I kind of think you could rephrase what you're saying as as like you're investing in yourself right you're you're building yourself more so than building the job you want you know what i mean in in it's almost kind of like in investing in yourself and pursuing these opportunities uh you're almost like building yourself as a puzzle piece and eventually you'll fit um whereas you know if you don't get the appropriate little knobs on there from the opportunities you pursue or don't or whatever uh it's going to be harder to fit somewhere maybe
1: yeah and like I, I, this mentality actually came sort of later in my life uh and the sort of like i mean the building opportunities things one thing but your choice of opportunity is also another aspect of that and uh, Chris, you know Stuart Wells, and I. I'll, I remember my first time meeting this guy, and uh, at a at a local conference, and he said, that when you're making choices and moving on in your life, you need to make choices that are going to give you something that is going to make what you want to do more possible. So whether or not you're doing something research wise, that's going to give you an edge to do what you want to do in the future. You know, whether or not it's GIS work, whether or not it's just hard statistics work, whether or not it's uh, research planning, uh, you know, whether or not you know, also it could be management of, of a research group. Those, those things are multifaceted things and, they, and you can look and, and try to find pieces of those that you can get from various opportunities. I feel like that's the key importance. Like you're you you can not just take whatever. You should look for things that are going to build on something that's gonna get you where you want to go. So I may have done rangeland. Yeah, I and I will probably don't see a good reason for it. Not. I can a test for how my parents react when I mention the word rangeland or how some friends react when I mention the word rangeland. It's sort of like, What is that? Do you just watch cows? And like more like it's it's like public public land management in a sense, but, but, it's, but it's incredibly multifaceted. It right? can I mean, uh, be communication with the public, which is an incredibly difficult. Field and trying to
0: learn how to convey science in a way that can be, be useful or
1: at least interesting to the public. That's difficult. But it can also be like just aspects of cooperating with agencies or it could be aspects of like trying to identify problems where they exist all those things are interesting to me they all fall into the void that i thought was interesting trying to look at you know wildlife human interactions and conflict that sort of like fit into my job. i was like living with it cool and then it grew from there like, like you learn new skills you'll get the opportunity to dive into things like i while working for the people I'm working for right now i learned r i had to learn r i just taught myself and i had the opportunity to do it i didn't have a class i had to learn it myself same thing with uh arcgis i had to learn how to use that. these are all things i wouldn't have had opportunities to do but i had an opportunity to do it here now i can use it to to want to do research in the future that i want to do or I continue to do right now and i'm doing a lot of projects currently that I don't even want to leave. It is too darn interesting. <laughs> so now I'm stuck with these ones, but I, I love it. I found out that, that I loved it. And now I don't want to go anywhere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, uh, I think you brought up a really good point about how a lot of wildlife management, public lands management is always about managing people more than it is wildlife managing wildlife and it's really even more so about managing like the relationships between people the relationships between groups and institutions of people and how they do things how they see things uh and how they relate to each other to get the result in the wildlife in the land uh that you want but could we can we talk a little bit more about like what the actual projects that you're working on are, are working on are, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh so I work on like a couple projects currently. I'm finishing up my master's and I mentioned earlier this sort of allocation project where we're trying to allocate a resource within a like a restricted area. So in this case, the critical habitat of the, the Mexico Meadow Jumping Mouse. Uh trying to allocate impact in a sense to, or use in a sense to like each species that uses the area so whether or not it's elk or cattle there's a lot of contention over which species is, is maybe the one most uh the, the one that's, that's responsible uh for for use so like, it's hard to know like you know, most research most satellite Opportunities, opportunities, these, these scheduled sort of visits to location where they count they count of individuals, count the amount of uh, species that they are, uh, or count the amount of species grazing, actually using resources or where they using species, and so or where using grasses. For, and so like, that was one aspect of it, which was which is what is supposedly finishing up this semester. So hopefully, I'll have that done. Um, other two projects. I am working with um, my my coworker in the lab, and we are focusing on a uh, sort of distribution project. looking at horses uh, around the uh, Heber wild horse territory up near Heber Overgard, and that's looking at sort of like what individuals are using the wild horse territory. Uh, and what aspects of the wild horse territory they're focused on using and this is supposed to help the forest service personnel better manage uh the populations that are within the territory so first of all identify who's important or who's supposed to be on that 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 territory and then once they identify those individuals knowing what aspects of that landscape I'll be most important to focus on when it comes to monitoring, et cetera. And then uh the last project is virtual fencing, which is a hot topic. Uh hot topic because I'm trying to make it hotter. Uh, so virtual fencing, I can imagine a fence, like not just like fencing with swords or something like that, but like a physical fence, barbed wire fencing or you know, chain link fencing. You can imagine a fence that's created with. GPS. So you can imagine a an invisible fence you can draw on, on on a map, and depending on those points on the map, that creates a obstacle for cattle to move around. And so that's being used to sort of manage herds on our experimental range south of the the University at the Santa Rita Experimental Range. And the whole goal about that is like if we if we can better manage cattle on the landscape, we can better manage use of the landscape. So there's not concentrated overuse in certain locations and we also can make sure that we move things in timely systematic matters. And that allows us to be more in control of where things it's you know where cattle are grazing, whether or not they're grazing in a place that they shouldn't or whether or not they're grazing in places they shouldn't because there's poisonous plants, or maybe there is a contaminated water source, uh, or maybe it's a habitat that is protected. We can restrict access to those locations depending on that year, and we could change it the next year. And we could play; we can really play adaptively into the process. Uh, and that's really cool because then we can control cattle. We can be like, oh, go up here, eat this invasive species. Eat this area that, ha- that hasn't been grazed because the cattle never reached that location. And they could reduce fuels, uh, reduce the chance of fires. There's actually a bunch of projects looking at um, at at the university, looking at uh, forecasting grass growth and then trying to pair it with fire management. So pairing this with that program would be incredible because then we could completely limit the the risk of fire in these locations just by moving the herd in a different location. So I'm working on those those projects. There's Always more. We uh, so working for a cooperative extension. I also assist forest service or any other agency that's interested in uh, various projects that they need, be it routine monitoring or habitat monitoring for endangered species as well.
0: Okay, <clears throat> I guess um, I think it might be helpful before we dive into any of these uh, kind of full bore. Uh, to s- explain a little bit the concept just like a brief explanation of the concept of public lands um, because you know coming from the midwest like i i had a, the loosest possible understanding of of public lands and now having lived in the western u.s for what three four years now three for for some time period of time, I now have a better understanding of public lands, and it's way different um, from what I originally thought. Yeah,
1: I'd say <laughs> I, it's I'd say it's very different. We have so much public land out here, and public land is a weird thing too. It's like, who owns the land? Like we we own the land, not not I, not you, we that's a weird concept that a lot of people don't understand. A lot of these agencies who manage these lands, like say Forest Service or BLM, uh, they manage these lands. With, Bureau,
0: Bureau of Land Management.
1: <laughs> yes, not the other one that's just important. Uh, <laughs> so these agencies manage these lands with, well, in Forest Service's perspective, uh, a multiple use objective. So these are resources to be used from multiple sort of institutions or groups. And that includes grazing, that includes hiking, that includes wildlife, that includes every possible thing that could use it. And the the idea is that you want to have all these groups be able to use it within the constraints, that they're not actually damaging that resource. Uh, BLM also has their own uh, version of multiple use as well. And so like these areas are all supposed to be use but within the within that that, like constraint of of impact sense so that everybody else is not being affected by the use of one party or another
0: right so it's really these these institutions jobs to kind of manage the parameters within which all these different groups can operate right um so yeah well are those regulations, are those set on
2: like a statewide level or more of like a federal level? So, so agency work is federal.
1: So mm-hmm. I, I, when I mentioned BLM, Forest Service, those are all like federal mandates, like the multiple use, uh, if I'm getting this wrong, I'm pretty sure it's like multiple use objective, but I, I feel like objective is a wrong word. Uh, those are agency, of course, though, within every sort of subset of a section or, you know, of like a forest they d- tend to do things a little differently like on how they approach those goals but they still do aim for those goals that is as their their focus they want to manage it appropriately within the confines of what has been de- uh, demanded by like demand of them but uh, it's going to be a little bit different on how they approach those goals since that's going to be a you know mostly a forest the forest sort of approach because you know things are things are different between states, things are different between cities or, you know, sections of a state between a lot can be different, whether or not it's technology wise, culture wise, there's a lot in play on how you can do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a big part of it. State agencies have their own objectives uh, and they tend to work with, with agencies to accomplish those objectives. Uh, I don't know much about state agency work itself. I just know that they tend to be more of Uh, game management uh, and and non-game management as well, but more in the context of, you know, mapping critical habitat and creating sort of these situations to better protect those those species.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a really good description. Uh, I I think there are, you know, a ton of people in this country who, you know, either apathy or largely lack of opportunity um, often don't get to see public lands or experience that that you know you're out there hunting and yet you're surrounded by cattle and those cattle are supposed to be there and they're helping keep that land public. Uh, but they also have to be managed so that they don't overgraze. So you can only have so many cattle, all that kind of thing. Um, that's like a thing like you know, managing those cows.
1: is difficult. So like a lot of research goes into making sure that when you stock an area, these areas are, are basically parsed out into a lot that's further parsed out into pastures, and these pastures can be stocked with an x amount of cattle that are going to match the production or attemptively match the production of the entire pasture in total. So they make an average for the the total pasture, uh, and so that that's but that assumes a big thing that, that production is is uniform across the carpet. Most likely, it's not. You might have repairing areas and move to the pasture. You might have areas that are just completely devoid of growth. You have a lot of south-facing areas that uh, south aspects sort of the areas that are drier, that don't produce as much. Might not be grazed at all. Areas that are steeper that might not be grazed at all. That sort of force cattle in one locations, one location on that pasture, and that completely shapes shifts on how like how that stock affects the landscape because you put them all in there. And you might be saying like, oh yeah, this is fine for an average production for the entire pasture, but if the pasture size is restricted by where they can access uh, forage, then you're basically increasing the amount on those very specific locations. And that causes sometimes, causes impact, it causes uh, conflict between other users.
0: Okay, and I think that's a perfect point to kind of jump into um, the project uh, that you work on that I'm most familiar with in trying to look at competing grazing interests between cattle and elk, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think, again, it's like, unless you work in range rangeland stuff or you know ranchers or you kind of live in a certain state that has this issue, you probably are entirely unaware of it the fact that you have to uh, make sure that, you know, cattle are not eating all of the grass in an area and that the wildlife can also eat it as well. Um, And that oftentimes ranchers might have a different perspective on that issue or, you know, that kind of problem. Yeah, well, starting with
1: the rancher's perspective, uh, most of these, these ranchers are there for a very long time. So they could be there for, for upwards of eighty plus years. Their family has, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and they have a lot of great input and insight into land management. Like, whether or not like, how they imagine their cattle using the landscape, uh, what they think or they perceive as sort of like an adequate level, an adequate level of of uh, of use, and so it's all very useful and it's also something that should be ignored. Uh, and but it, but it also comes down to like it's really there's a lot of subtle subtle, subtle things that can happen when grazing./ uh, pressure pressures onto one species more than another. Uh, the having certain species more resilient to grazing than other. like these are things that are really hard to even notice. So you can have one species being, graze less or more more re- resistant to being grazed, and those ones happen to, to persist in the landscape in a, in a better state than others, and that could have adverse effects on everybody's uses. Mostly probably wildlife in a lot of contexts, but it could also affect uh, water retention in a, a location. But you can also look at other aspects of impacts, not just removing forage, but you can look at just how many individuals show up in a location and how that might affect Erosion in that that area might affect whether or not uh, soil is stable enough to maintain vegetation that could be used by cattle. So there's a a lot of aspects like this is a a really, really difficult to balance. And I I don't think people think of it as, as like, think of it as how complicated it can be. A lot of institutions might be like, oh, we should remove cattle, plain and simple. But we don't even know what happened if you did remove cattle. Like, what if there was no use at all? We, we restrict fire in a lot of cases. What if that's? What if like no no fire, no whatever, no uh, no grazing? What if that has an impact on certain species that we don't even know? no to look for, and we can't even find them because it's so overgrown. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, a lot of we don't knows, and trying to balance it while maintaining use is probably our best way to do it. And uh, but like teasing apart that use is also pretty difficult. And that was like what my master's is about is how do we know that the use we see in one location could be related to uses we see in other locations? Like, do species use one spot one the other? And can we say if we stop a camera and a tree overlooking a location, we look at all the individuals grazing in that location and we break it up into percentages, how does that tell us? If, the, uh, you know, if that use is representative of the larger area. Because like, you don't, it's really hard to know. Like you can go out there. So the current sort of uh, dogma when it comes to utilization is we can go out there and we can measure uh, measure a bunch of grass. We'll go along, measure the grass lengths. we we'll look for plants that are ungrazed, we'll look for plants that are grazed. And then we look for, we get an average height of ungrazed and uh, the average height of grazed. And we can look at the amount removed. That's one method, there's a couple others. One method that we like to use is called the pair plot method, where we have a bunch of cages that restrict all use in the cages. And then this allows, uh, this allows us to have an area that's ungrazed. So nothing removes anything inside this cage. So we can sample outside of it along the reach, and we can sample within the cage as well. And that allows us to see a a direct relation between what can grow and what's being removed. But that still doesn't give us insight into who ate it all. Was it the cattle? Was it the elk? Was it a a band of horses that snuck in, ate it all real quick, then ran away? We don't don't even, we have no clue. So using a camera, we can break it up into percentages and apply a percentage to that. We can say, oh.
0: Okay, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just wanted to clarify that when you say percentage you're saying uh, you know 20% of this was eaten by elk you know 30% horses yeah. or that kind of thing. I can do more into that so.
1: Cattle, elk and horse or any other species, they all eat differently, so they all eat a fill different so. To sort of weigh whether or not something is grazing and its impact, we weight it by an animal unit. And an animal unit is like how much it would eat in a day in relation to a cow, to a thousand pound cow. So, you know, an elk will eat, I think it's like 0.8 or something like that, and a horse might eat 1.2, and that's because it's a hindgut fermentator, so it tends to eat a little more to sort of meet its quota. But they'll eat a different amount in relation to their body weight, and then so we can sort of try to recognize that when they're grazing, their grazing is all sort of weighted on how much they're going to eat. So we take these counts of individuals grazing, weighted by that by that animal unit, and then we can say, okay, cool. So this was the amount that elk removed from that landscape versus the amount that cattle. Or potentially removed or horses or whatever, and we can apply that to the paired plot utilization that I explained earlier. So we can say like, oh, this many, this much pounds per acre was removed, right? And we can go, okay, within this exact same habitat type, this many pounds per acre was removed by elk mm-hmm. or cattle or horses. And then we go, okay, so now you know, now you know how to break it up. So all these pastures are stocked by a, a certain amount of AU or, or a certain amount of, a certain head that meets an AU for that pasture. So now they can think about, okay, cool. So we know that elk, if their population is maintained at a certain level, and that's all maintained by uh game and fish in this context, or New Mexico's given fish, because this is all in Mexico state. Uh, so that they, they maintain that population, assumedly they're maintaining it correctly. We can control the cattle. And then we know that if we reduce the cattle in a certain context, what's going to happen. So if you put the the cameras out again, you can see if reducing it at all causes any change is positive. Is it going to be a lower utilization and a better residual? And more residuals actually better for the New Mexico manager because its entire life depends on cover in these riparian areas, since they're a riparian obligate that exists for a very short period of time like having residuals is very important. So we can try to map that out and adaptively approach understanding it.
0: Okay, um, so, so it's
1: useful. Kind
0: of yeah, and, and just to clarify by residual, you mean just ungrazed uh, yeah. vegetation and riparian means uh, along like where water would flow, right? So yes, thank you and, for being the person who makes it easier for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we were trying to make it, you know, uh, accessible, um, but you did briefly just mention um, the New Mexico jumping mouse. Uh, could you talk about a little bit about that and how that plays into this project?
1: Yeah. So the all of the work for this project is associated with habitat for that mouse. And these these the species is is like I mentioned an obligate for these intermountain riparian areas. So yes, in the mountain where where water flows, uh, and they're restricted to a very small three four month period where they are active, and they can they can eat reproduce and they go into hibernation for now like you know six to 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 seven months and uh, or plus. What is that? Uh, am I doing the math right? I don't know. It's fine. They, they sleep for a very long time, or active for a very short time. And while they're active, they need to have cover. There's a lot of predators, whether or not they're owls, um, red tails, uh, goshawks, whatever. Uh, these guys are at risk of being eaten. And so, having an X amount of height allows enough protection to where these, these individuals can run around in parent areas and eat unrestricted. And there are, of course, endangered species. So it's, in, it's, it's it's required by the Forest Service to create a situation that protects the species from going extinct. And as a result, uh, they are interested in doing certain things. Uh, one of which is fencing off all of the majority of these riparian areas, these, these, uh, the critical, critical habitat that has been identified so far, fencing it off completely. And that was on on board, but they needed to under, you know, they they needed to discuss with stakeholders, everybody who's interested. And one idea was like, we need to know, you know, they're blaming elk, they're saying, oh, elk are the main cause. And that might be be true, we don't necessarily know. In my case, I think from what I know, uh, most of the time, cattle tend to focus a lot of their efforts in these areas, and there's a lot of reasons for why they Areas tend to stay green longer. They tend to stay cooler. They tend to have water sources right, right there. Yeah, they just drink. Uh, They tend to have really really rapidly regrowing forage. There's a lot of incentives for cattle to sort of you know use these riparian corridors more than these upland areas or in the forest, Uh, whereas elk tend to to choose that like area along forest lines a bunch. Uh, You know. Based on what I've read. So, I mean, there is a, you know, we don't know. So now we can go out there and we can say, okay, cool. Based on what we've seen specifically in these habitats, we know that cattle are using them to this amount. Uh, the other aspect was they were interested in how fencing works and because they want to fence off these locations. So, uh, we also that fencing mode or not works. But um, when it comes to that species, I have to say that, like, uh, I would say, and I probably shouldn't say this, the biggest threat looks like it's going to be big cattle. But further analysis is what really is necessary to to hone down who is the culprit. in sense. But then again, like even after you do this, most likely these areas are defense, and I mean that's it, probably a better decision. But even then, I don't even know how that might. Play out is a big consequence of restricting an area. These, Like I mentioned, these areas grow more uh, in response. Uh, well, these areas grow more because they're, they're, they're immediately adjacent to water, but they also grow more in response to you know, being grazed. Grasses tend to, once they're grazed, they'll uh, increase growth of their leaf blades to sort of return to get more leaf blade areas, so they can grow more. So they need this and they do do this. So, it's gonna be interesting seeing this when we're looking at like these riparian areas where they make upwards to 800% more than the uplands, and then restricting use in these riparian areas. That's gonna be an interesting play. We don't really know how the cattle are gonna react if, they're, if the number of cattle put in those pastures is not gonna change. So it's gonna be interesting regardless, like whether or not it plays out like they thought it would.
0: <laughs> well that's exactly it i mean i think uh this project is a perfect example kind of circling back to what we talked about in the beginning of how you know you i'm, I'm not trying to speak for you but you might not think rangeland is the the most interesting concept in the world and yet within operating in the context of rangeland you're helping ranchers, you are helping avoid conflict with other ungulate species like elk, and you're also working on a project uh, to help the conservation of an endangered species. Uh, so that's a that's a perfect example of, you know, seeking out those opportunities and uh, taking advantage of them to put yourself in a position uh, that better fulfills yourself, even if, like, from the outside, it might not look like it.
1: Yeah, and I think like a lot of people don't really imagine what a uh, person, what someone who who studies rangeland actually does. Like, so rangeland is a huge topic, and people who are involved with that are incredibly faceted in certain aspects. Whether or not they're interested in soil, as well, interested in grazing, whether or not interested in the rancher agency dynamic, there's a ton of different ways that you can approach rangelands. And that's also a really nice part because when you go to school to study rangelands, you're getting this incredible generalist perspective, but it provides you with an avenue to sort of look at how all these resources uh, could be used. You don't get a background in forestry, I guess it's true, but when it comes down to anything else, whether it's recreation or grazing, uh, an understanding of how fire impacts uh, the landscape you have a huge background in understanding of how these plants will respond how the wildlife will respond to the plants because your focus is largely on on the dominant uh, forage user on the landscapes in most cases uh, not always but in most cases so like it's it's a, it's, a, it's a i'd say you don't think about it you don't think about it being that way because like most people, when they hear rangeland, they think they think cowboys and and cows and stuff like that. But no, I don't. I don't even think of it that way. I think of it as like you just need to manage a particular type of use and understand all of the facets that that use can impact the the resource in the future, whether or not it's water resources, soil resources, forage resources, uh, aesthetic resources. It's like crazy. No
0: one thinks that, but it's so cool. Rangelands, freak neat. I'm not bragging about things. It's pretty cool. <laughs> you do brag. Do brag. You're 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 invited <laughs> on the preeminent uh, science communication podcast. You should be bragging about this. I mean, you know, please tell your I'll, friends.
1: Tell everybody that I'm bragging. Okay, fine, <laughs> fine, whatever. But, but also another thing is that with the rangelands, they're <laughs> the fields taking steps to advance. Their ability to better manage these things, like I mentioned with the virtual fencing stuff, like that's a huge leap into making sure that resources are better managed for everyone. And you know, the 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 people that are going to come into this field in the future are going to be tech savvy. They're going to understand even more when it comes to resource use, and it's going to be an even uh, I'd say an even more uh, like well-rounded sort of career option it's there's just so much there's so much you can do with it I,
0: I think um you make a really important point that i would re like i'm going to rephrase now for uh to put it in perspective where i think a lot of people probably don't see it but with a lot of land management wildlife management stuff you are really kind of trying to manage the present as a consequence of the past for a better future. And, you know, I think when you look at it across that spectrum of time, um, it's a lot more appreciable than being just, you know, that baseline perspective. Um, And I think it's, you could probably widely apply that to a lot of wildlife and and public land fields. Um, And then is there anything else uh, you wanted to say about this project before we move on to uh your virtual fencing work
1: well uh, i'd say that this product isn't a silver bullet the technology required requires us to take a photo every five minutes or minute which you can imagine without uh the proper tech it's a bit difficult to process all these photos and then also if you don't have cameras that are incredibly reliable you can miss huge swaths of of time and uh, that's going to greatly affect your perception on like who's using that location. So that's a big aspect behind it. And that's something that I'm grappling with as we speak, trying to finish my masters.
0: (laughs) So yeah, I I guess I I forgot to um, kind of mention this, but to collect this data with your game cameras, um, you put them up in a tree and you set them to automatically take photos at, at these intervals, right?
1: Yeah, so that was the thing, like most most people who do camera traps know that they're trying to put it basically at the, the level of the shoulders of the species they're targeting, because you're trying to capture this movement across the camera using a motion sensor, and that allows this camera to trigger, take a picture, and you do a burst, do a collection of really quick photos, whatever, uh, and so with that context, you know that that's usually strapped through the bottom of the tree. You're trying to get something small, like you know the tallest thing you might run across is a jaguar. What is that like, like nipple height? And it's <laughs> it's pretty high, but like not super high. In our case, these these shots are landscape shots. So you're getting this huge, wide open shot of, a, of an area, and that makes things really confusing. So you can't quantify that area very well. So you have this huge area that can extend way into the distance, the entire valley. uh, We tried that that way and it's very difficult to identify a cow whether or not it's grazing or there's two cows grazing, or if it's one cow with two heads, we can't really tell. So uh, we put them in trees and this was partially encouraged by camera theft because people could cancel your cameras pretty easily shoot off the tree. But if we put them 30 feet of tree, and no one's touching them. So we'll climb <laughs> them into a tree, angle them down, try to get a uh, like a quadrat, a, 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 an area that we can control that, that uh, is specific. So we can say like number of individuals per area, number of individuals mm-hmm. grazing per area. And that allows us to sort of approach things a little bit differently with our analysis. And uh, that's what I'm teasing with right now, mostly because um, our camera, areas vary a lot over the two-year study that we did, Mm
2: -hmm. which makes things very interesting. I've got kind of a stupid question for you. I love those. So uh, between, uh, like, cattle, elk, and horses, do they have different grazing uh, habits? And by that, I mean, like, for example, would a horse, like, eat all the grass uh, um, in, like, one square foot and then move 10 feet up the street or up the or whatever and then have another meal or do they all kind of just like eat just what's in front of them then move on
1: so eats just what's in front so uh there's going to be selection for different types of forage types Mm -hmm. so cattle are going to be they're mainly refuge feeders they do tend to select grasses or sedges or yeah mostly those types but they can eat anything literally all of them can eat anything. They, more, more or less unless the, the plant's toxic to them, they can eat, they'll, they'll eat, nibble on literally everything. The percentage of, of what they nibble on is gonna vary a bunch. Cal, uh, kind of, like I said, they're edges. They'll tend to select a lot more for the grasses. Uh, and that's what I was trying to say with like certain certain species of being more, uh, and then certain species that are more resilient to being grazed can survive that. Uh, elk tend to have a more diverse diet where they'll eat more forbs or shrubs uh, as well as grasses. Uh, horses, um, they eat everything, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like just like vacuums on the landscape. Whatever they can get. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever they can get though. The, There've been reports of, of horses on the Salt River going into the river and just like shoving their head into the water and trying to eat forage underwater oh wow
0: that's, <laughs> like that's a moose crazy. <laughs> yeah like a moose
1: yeah no, no they're, they're they're pretty tough tough creatures I have to say uh but like it also comes down to uh, the biggest constraints I mentioned constraints earlier like what like, allows us to do what we do uh certain species have an ability to remove more of certain things at certain times so horse have top and bottom teeth which allows them to clip closer and closer and closer to that crown of grass. Uh, certain species that create stolons or rhizomes tend to be more resistant to these things because they can just sprout off new plants, less, less in the, on the stolen part but more on the rhizome part. But uh, these horses can nibble far, far down. And so in certain locations that are really hammered by horses can look like putting greens in a sense. Uh, Cows can also nibble down pretty low, but you know, at, at some point in time, there is a diminishing returns, and they'll just move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, from some of the stuff that I've seen with my sites, they tend to increase the amount of time they're in a location. And I think that's just to sort of meet a threshold before they move on. Uh, but I'm not 100% sure on that topic, though. Uh, that's merely presumptive speculation in, in a sense. But they are very, they're, they're all differently selective and they all have different sort of morphological features that allow them to remove more or less from the landscape gotcha
2: gotcha thank you
0: yeah that's a good question and a a good explanation um yeah no i'm serious because i think a lot of people again you know we we are speaking to a pretty general audience and the idea that you know while a horse and a cow may eat the same kind of grass, they're going to be doing it in a different way, which has different consequences, is something that a lot of people probably don't spend time thinking about uh, in their daily lives. Yeah, I think I spend too much time thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Just when you're going to sleep at night, instead of counting sheep, you're like, all right, yes, top and bottom team. <laughs> yeah, how many bites in the horse take?
1: This is watching animals come by and grazing in the riparian area. I'm counting the individuals in my head. That's so what's really <laughs> happening. <hard. laughs>
0: Let's get to your, uh, your Cyberscape future, uh, sat geo-fencing, because I think, you know, uh, this, as you said, has great potential for the future to help us manage um, grazing in ways that we can't do right now. And in a very targeted way. Yeah, sure. Uh,
1: so to start off, so the Santa Rita Experimental Range is collaborating with Proper Extension to fund a uh, sort of a study examining the use of virtual fencing using uh, the company Vents' is project. Vents, as in virtual fence, very very original. I love it. Uh, so <laughs> Vence, uh, so, is, so through events, we're going to collar somewhat, we have two herds, we have a small herd, we have a large herd. So of cattle, cattle have, correct? Of cattle, exactly. I mean, I wish there were goats, but that's a whole <laughs> other topic. Anyways, of cattle. So we have a small herd, a large herd. And our, our sort of approach for the next three years is we wanna hound out all the details involved in making this the most accessible we can to the ranching community. Uh, I mentioned earlier, being able to restrict access by the by you know, drawing a line on a by, on a tablet, restricting access to a location by drawing a line is incredibly useful. Uh, so, this is probably as unknown, but making so when you're out wandering around, you see a barbed wire fence. Uh, it costs roughly a, a a dollar per foot to build those fences. And if you think about a mile a mile is like roughly 5,0-ish feet so for every mile they're spending roughly uh, $5,000 to build a fence uh, and that's also excluding the cost to constantly repair this fence in perpetuity. or build a new fence outside that fence, because the old fence has gone to total total crap and so like this creates an opportunity for them to ignore that aspect uh, to, to not worry about constantly maintaining fencing uh, that's one incredible point they don't have to focus on that they can focus on other things uh, Another thing is that they can uh, combine with us being able to block individuals from certain locations whenever we want and not have to work with the cost involved in that we can also know the location of all of the cattle because every every individual is collared so we can know the location depending on how often we want to know it maybe really 15 minutes or an hour or a day uh we can know how where they are located at on the map so we could if an an individual disappears decides to go rogue we can go locate it and instead of just wondering or driving around aimlessly we can look at them immediately and and then pick them up put them back with the main herd so those are really useful things just plain and simple and i've mentioned earlier a bunch of reasons for why it's useful restricting them to have access to locations but those two things are going to restrict the costs of a ranchers, they can focus on other aspects of their operation. And that could be more beneficial to the landscape. And and I'm, I I had to say, I I believe that a lot of these individuals, you know, I mentioned that their families are out there for 80 plus years, Uh, they're completely invested in this landscape, they want to see it the best they can. And this gives them a new opportunity to do that to invest in the landscape to invest in things that they might not have had time to focus on before because they were out fixing fence or trying to find money to build new fences uh, or to locate cattle that, that have disappeared. Like they now have the ability to do that. And this this is going to give them the ability to do it, but like it's a new technology. That's the hard well, part. It's, <clears throat> it's a new tech like that, you know, trying to figure out how to introduce that is is, is going to be interesting and complicated.
0: Could you elaborate on the mechanism of how these collars actually do um, tell a cow they they can't go there, or they need to move or how, how does that mechanism work? So the, the best way I can explain
1: this is through an analogy. So if you're walking around, you're just aimlessly walking around in the distance, you hear a buzzing noise and you think bees you'll avoid those beasts. Maybe like, oh, I wanna look over there, but you're gonna avoid them. You'll walk around that circle of where that sound comes from. So what we know, we know that that sound is associated with some pain. Like we know that like, oh yeah, we just stormed the castle. We're gonna get attacked by the troops. So in this case, what we wanna do is we wanna train them to recognize that when they hear a sound, that's gonna be associated with a punishment this is called negative reinforcement we train them to recognize a signal as something that they can avoid so they're avoid they're 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 choosing to avoid a punishment in a sense to reinforce reinforced to avoid a punishment so what we do is we have these collars on them the collars come with uh, auditory devices and shock so what's gonna happen is when we draw these lines so we draw a line anywhere on a map cattle are out walking around eating grass and they come into a management zone. And this meant the first management zone is purely sound. So this is after training. Training is a current discussion. We're trying to figure out the best method of training, which is part of the project. But after training them, the individuals should come into the sound and they hear it. And it's going to be bimodal. So they'll be able to have a sound for each year. So if they come in and it's on this side, they come in to the sounds on the right side of them, they'll hear it and they'll be like, oh, bees. And then they'll careen the opposite direction and then continue on their merry way. And so this creates an opportunity for us to give the cattle the opportunity to choose to avoid something which is a very strong behavior. It's only gonna come down to sort of honing that behavior that allows us to prevent it. And so if they were to keep continuing, so. Within training, you'd have this management zone that's just sound, and then it moves on to a management zone that's sound and shock. So they go through the sound, they're hearing this, and then eventually they come to a point where they're hearing it and they're being shocked. And then they learn that, oh no, these things are paired. So then they run your away, and then as soon as they leave the management zone, the shocking management zone, it's just sound they run away. Uh, and uh like, you know, there's a lot of concerns, everyone on like the shock's gonna drive them nuts, but there's the you know, this fail safes, prevent them from being you know, shocked into insanity. Like after a certain amount of time, it's the shock stop. Uh, these fences are one way. So once they pass through both management zones, they are technically, they've moved through it. But in a lot of contexts, you might have more fences behind it that keep preventing them. And these fences sort of act as like a a passive collect, collector or trapper. So they can move one, like one direction and it gives them all these signals, but the other direction, there's nothing. So once they pass through, they can, be, they might hit in their fence, like, oh no, there's a shock thing here. And then they, they've learned from the previous experience and they avoid, they walk the other direction. Once they go back through that original fence, they get no rea- reaction until they get to the other side and they try to move back through it again, they'll get stopped. So there's ways to, to make it so it's a little more secure. But the basic gist of it is that we can get them to recognize the sound and then unconsciously respond to the sound. Uh, you can think of it as like a, like a Pavlonian response. So like, uh, you know, the whole story of ringing the bell and the dog starts to salivate because it thinks it's going to be fed. Same exact concept. But instead of salvation, they just take a step away from the sound that's signaling punishment.
0: Yeah. And... And well, they, I was going to say, and these fences are uh, placed by GPS coordinate, right? So the cow's collars are communicating with satellites that know where they are, right? Because there's no physical fence.
1: Yeah. And well, So the way it sort of works is that you have these towers that exist on the landscape. These towers okay. allow you to connect to those collars. Okay. Uh, so basically, you'll have all your cows that go out, and within, within the connection of the tower, you can update the the I guess you could say the, the the fence layout plan for each of these individuals. And this can be broken up. It's not just by, you know, not just by the entire herd. You can break this herd up into smaller sub-virtual herds. And each of those can have different rules on how they can use the landscapes. Because we're basically playing off the individual we're not we're trying to trying to avoid a herd reaction or trying to uh, basically sort of you know uh, Place these cattle in in a way that they're going to react on their own, not necessarily within this like herd construct. But anyways, we can create these virtual herds and separate them. This could be based off of body score. If you're trying to isolate individuals that have lower body score to give them access to supplement, uh, while having the rest of the healthy individuals go off and do their normal stuff, or maybe you're trying to separate the 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 uh, the bowls so you can you know collect them and move them off the landscape where you're trying to uh, you know sort of figure out uh, you know separate the different aged cows. There's many ways you can separate this stuff, but basically the idea is you can separate them in which form. But if they come into this uh, sort of zone of this tower, they can be updated, and this allows you to do a, a couple of different things. Like you can update them on once, and this could be like like uh, exclusion zones or fencing replacements, or um, yeah, no, that's that's pretty good exclusion zones, fencing replacements. And this basically says like these aren't going to change for the time that you're in there. We don't need to change them. Uh, if you wanted to get more technical, you could have more of these towers to increase the area that you can re, you can you know connect with as many individuals as possible, and you can update them more often. So you could change the fencing. And do it, you know, consistently. So you'd be like, okay, cool. Individuals, uh, we're gonna do, we're gonna block out this area, this fence, and then we're gonna create an opportunity where we can trap you on the other side of this of this fence as you access a water source. And then you, you originally you couldn't access the rest of the, of this this pasture, but now because we're allowing just you to go, whoever goes through this area to this water source to have access, they'll be trapped as they come to water because it's one way and then they are stuck in that new aspect of the pasture. So you can more optimally control where the cattle are going. So no longer is it just sort of like, we have you know, this huge area and much cattle in it. It's like we have a bunch of slivers or slices of that area we can put cattle in. And that requires us to have constant connection with the cattle, or at least with the collars. So we can update it more often, depending on how often we wanna create new scenarios or we trap them in a new asp- new part of that pasture. So uh, it, it, it's two different ways, like If you're interested in protecting habitat, you could just do probably one tower. If you're are in micromanaging your, your individuals, you need multiple towers to make sure you cover the area and make sure you capture these individuals.
2: And once they get used to associating the, uh, the, the bee noise with the shocking, then they won't have to be shocked anymore. they'll just go the correct direction just from the, the bee noise itself, correct?
1: Well, it's 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 not necessarily a bee noise. That was an analogy. Mm-hmm. It's, I think yeah. it's more like a ring. So they're just trying to associate them with a ring. But yeah, it, once they associate with that ring, they shouldn't need to go into the shock zone anymore. And like that's a big topic that I've been trying to consider is how do we sort of create stimulus control for this? Because stimulus control is an idea that like uh, say you're training a dog and you want to give it a signal, you say sit and you want the dog to sit immediately. That's called signal control or stimulus control. So you want to create a stimulus and that reacts to it immediately. To do that, there's that's usually, you usually use positive reinforcement. You can shape it to a way to it's almost immediate to where they react. But with negative reinforcement, you're giving them the opportunity to make a choice. So trying to figure out a way to encourage them to make that choice faster is, interesting. And our, our current method that we're going to try is giving them as many opportunities. I feel like opportunity is the word of the day. We're giving them as <laughs> opportunities to, to run into virtual fencing as possible. So for our, our training regime, we're going to create uh every day for the course of x amount of time, uh, we're going to get, introduce them to a new random placement of fencing. And this will allow them to sort of walk around and constantly run into it. And they'll have more opportunities to avoid or to choose to avoid the shock without as much, you know, as much desire to cross that. Cause we wanna remove that. We don't want them to think like, oh, there's food over there. I'm gonna go over there. We want them to not think at all. So we'll have small blips that really don't have as much incentive. It's constantly changing. There's, there's no uh, visible attachment to why they're going to avoid an area, they walk up to it, they hear a sound, they have no association with anything. This is a totally new area. They've never seen a fence before. There's nothing to focus on, no water source, no fencing, no uh, forage, more forage available in one particular location. Nothing. They're just queuing off of the sound in the relation to the shock. That removes that sort of like confusion, that mix up when they're trying to make a decision, and makes it more streamlined. So that's yeah. my, our attempt at trying to fix this stimulus control issue to make it so make it more exact. So that's what it's one thing we'll be testing out uh, with our pilot study and our current studies. We're going to look at long term how that plays out with our herds.
2: Nice. That is a super interesting concept. I
1: like I like that a lot. Yeah, and then another thing. Oh, I went to school and I came back because I wanted to do animal behavior and here I am training herds of cows. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so I guess how far away do you see this from being like large scale implemented?
1: Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways it can be implemented. So I view the direction that the U.S. should take is implementing these things in all public lands because this only makes management of these herds better on these public lands, but better for the rancher, better for forest service, Uh, but both can have basically a breakdown of of use. Another thing we're hoping to look at is um, sort of pairing these GPS points, these heat maps, GPS points utilization, and then that'll better help us understand Sort of how utilization sort of spread out across the pasture and then adjust accordingly, trying to sort of shape utilization, make it more continuous across one of these sub pastures, you know?
0: Right. And so
1: that's one aspect. And then also accountability is really useful. So we know where cattle are and we can move them around. And this is a more systematic process instead of hoping that, uh, you know, that the cow was can move. You know, the majority of the herd to the next pasture, and then spend the next like two weeks trying to collect the rest of the herd and then move them to the pasture. It's you move the entire herd within a couple days, instead of you know two weeks. So that's also very useful. It's very very systematic, and so I, I imagine like that's how I want to see it used in the U.S. In uh, so the, we use the company Vences product uh, in in uh Australia, they use the company Argenson, I think that's what it's called. I hope I'm not butchering that. Uh, but they have uh, a lot of uh government back uh, uh back I it was not back they have a lot of government support over um implementing this across the entirety of, of Australia. So like you have, you know seeing a similar process across the US would be very useful uh or at least if we copied them. We we do have uh, NRCS France that can support that, and a lot of our agency personnel are, are really pushing and driving this to see sort of a continuous sort of um, grid in a sense a, a large scale grid of of um, towers across our public lands to make sure this can be done, but uh, that's going to be. Far off in the future, I'm not 100% sure how quickly that'll come into fruition. Hopefully, by the time we finish our work, we'll have everything to make sure that uh, any rancher who's interested has everything they need to get going.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my next question of like, about how soon uh, could you think these things would be implemented? But, of course, you're still in the the research process, the,
1: you know. Yeah, I'm still in the research process, but there are people in the U.S. who, there are ranchers who are implementing this in the East, in Montana, in various universities. It's not, we're not the only ones doing this. Uh, It's, if anything, it's a collaborative approach. We, there's none of us are dead set on taking the glory of virtual fencing. I think we're all just sort of desperately trying to make sure that this technology is available to anybody who wants to use it because of how valuable it is. Uh, And like, we have uh, working groups that are approaching, trying to approach, if anything, how we're going to approach using this from a research perspective, but also uh, how other universities want to, what their questions they're trying to answer, uh, our university is also interested in doing an economic sort of breakdown of the use of technology, seeing how much you can save by using this technology. Vince uh, tends ten, ten, ten to say you can double your profits, but uh, we want to know. You know, a rancher wants to see numbers versus just sort of like a slogan. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're hoping to bring them that information just to make sure that's like you know, you know, because we want them to commit. That's the thing. Like. don't want someone to make a choice under the thumb of somebody else we want them to make a choice because they see value in it and uh we're trying to make it so that they can see as much value in it themselves and that when they commit to it they know what they're doing and they know that they're committing to immediately and there's a lot of a lot of ranchers who see the value to this and another thing is that this might help create create interest in ranching for your generation well uh, i i can't speak for all the gen zers the zoomers out there in the world but i, I do know that a lot of a lot of uh, millennials or whatever that, you know having the ability to to like integrate technology into an operation makes it easier to i feel like grasp and sort of approach as well and, that, and not as much just blind trust for And then hope, but uh, a a actual, natural thinking, understanding of what is literally happening, and this gives you that immediate response that all of us crave.
0: (laughs) Right, and and we're absolutely seeing kind of a, you know, a homesteading movement at some level. You know, I think it's very we're seeing, you know generally, I think even prior to COVID, but with especially with COVID, people moving to more rural areas. Um, and so with that, I could definitely see uh, an increase in the number of people that actually want to kind of get more involved with hands-on, uh, you know, quote unquote, like back to the land uh, type of industries, you know. Yeah, and to, to add to this, like there are some
1: groups. So there are like, like where is it on?
0: I believe in Colorado.
1: Colorado. Or Wyoming, I can't remember. I'm a horrible researcher, I forget things too so easily. Uh, but there are groups who are trying to try to create these sort of coalitions of multiple multiple ranching partners and they run all their cattle together. So this would create an opportunity to know exactly where your your cattle are within those operations. So, like, you know, you don't have to worry about losing your cattle's identity, losing your cattle in general, because you know where they are at all times. If we do have smaller operations they can also benefit from these towers. So to have a collar, this collar, I'm, I'm sure you have a little bit of a background in how much a wildlife collar might cost. So those are like somewhere around $2,000. In the past, they're like five grand. They were ridiculous prices to put a collar on an animal and that animal just disappears because it was eaten by a mountain lion or something. So <laughs> or just it, dug in, it went into a cave and died and you just lose it. <laughs> But, but anyways, in this case, these collars are only $35 a collar. So, uh, and, and I, it's, I believe either it's $35 a year afterwards or $10 a year afterwards uh, subscription. So for smaller operations, this makes it really, really accessible, incredibly accessible. If these towers that I was mentioning earlier, these are the most expensive upfront cost, these towers are already implemented on public land and they have some overlap. No, yeah, they're just implemented on public land. Then you have you would have the ability to use those in those locations as well. So mm-hmm. these massive grids can be can be shared. They're just basically a you know a, a, like a giant Wi-Fi tower in a sense. And you could ping off these, and you you can have a you know a herd of you want to have a herd of ten. You can throw them out on public land. You could share that public land with some other rancher. This is all <laughs> high hopes in a sense, but you could do that and you could manage it better and you won't have to worry about, you know, fighting over uh, who has what permit or what it's gonna be in what location because you could just plan it all out. It's, it's, it's you know, this, this, is, this is like dangerously treading on the big data sphere, but like, this can <laughs> all be managed. This can all be managed.
0: <laughs> Yeah, until we get some uh, Terminator cows, right? Yes. Yeah. some, some Skynet cows. No <laughs> um, <rubber> dogs. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean that—that's fascinating. Um, I think uh, you shared more information about this with me this time than than previously, so I can say I'm I'm more convinced now than I was before <clears throat> that it would actually work. You know, not that I didn't believe in you, just the whole uh, concept. I would, of not, I would have the
1: I, I feel like that might've been over a few beers and I was trying to sell you on the idea of collaring elephants. So I mean, I, I was going a little extreme with, with my nonsense. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Let's not even get into the Let's not even get into the elephant issue now. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that like, I think it's going to blow a lot of people's minds uh, to, to hear kind of the tech space direction where an industry that, you know, when people hear ag, they often think, or agriculture, they often think like the past, like history, uh, you know, rural history of this country. Uh, But in reality, as with everything else, it's moving along with big, you know, technology, um, which I think is pretty fascinating. And it's pretty fascinating that you can take such a modern concept of, you know, satellites, GPS, uh, you know, signal emitting towers and cows and put those two things together in a system that works. Um, That's pretty, that's pretty fascinating. Uh, Do you have any like final thoughts on that? And then we can kind of get into, you know, the future or, you know, things you might see happening or or things you want to say to people
1: uh i don't have I mean, like despite, aside from like relaying information to other people that this can be a thing yeah you yeah know, there's that whole like trope that you know we're all separated by five layers of, of people or whatever so like yeah, talk about it, get it out there. I, I think like a, a big problem with the world is that we just don't know enough about everybody else. We don't need to be experts, but we should all try to like have some general understanding of what everybody else is doing. Makes <laughs> mm-hmm. conversation more interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but relaying talk, people, you know, sharing that, sharing that like you know, ranching, not is just a, 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 you shouldn't just demonize ranching. You shouldn't just demonize people who work in ranching uh or work with rangelands because there's just so much there's so much there like no one really it's hard to like just sort of pin somebody and it's hard to to pin a rancher as well but you know we're all making huge leaps huge leaps in technology to to make sure that we do things right and that's why i feel like we're not so trustful of us, doing. You know, we're, we're, we're all working really hard to make sure that things are, are done in the best sense for all of us. So make sure everyone knows that.
0: Tell everybody that. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, man. I mean, it's easy, you know, coming into, again, having no experience with public lands and, and being a biologist, conservation biologist and conservationist. So obviously my priorities lie with wildlife. Uh, And so it's easy to think that in any kind of human wildlife conflict, the ranchers are at fault, or, you know, um, it is industry that is necessarily absolutely the problem and that, you know, that there's not really a workaround. But I think these kind of practical applications in ways uh, that we haven't thought of before are Going to have a big effect in alleviating these conflicts, you know. Um, And I think the more, as you said, the more we learn about these efforts or all these complex interactions that have to be managed, uh, you know, it is—it's definitely changed my perspective on, on, you know, who's at fault in in these problems.
1: Yeah, I, remember, I was talking last time about how people use cattle as a tool uh, to sort of reduce fine fuels so they can do uh, fire prescriptions or just trying to alleviate the risk of fire. And you were shocked about that. Like, there's just so many different facets that no one really knows. It's just you need to have the information need to have some introduction to it and it's just so difficult to get that introduction if you don't take a class (laughs) or you don't have someone to talk to since we're so restricted in who we get to talk to that Mm. you know it limits our view but it's not her fault it's just how life
0: is Mm -hmm. and then uh do you have any like closing thoughts or
1: Well, uh, you mentioned earlier that my future plans. uh, I'm going to keep doing this because it's awesome. Uh, I don't want to create competition in the job field, but cooperative extension is a a viable way of making a living and a very interesting and fulfilling one. So if anybody listens, and they've never heard of cooperative extension, uh, the counties have cooperative extensions. the states have cooperative extensions, Uh, all based out of the universities, and you should look into them. Very cool. Uh, Other than that, hmm, oh, uh, give a hoot about uh, undergrad student organizations at universities. They can use our help, and they're all desperately trying to figure out what the heck to do with their lives. Uh, Not having funding to do things, these student organizations are quite desperate, and they, could use more funding to make better choices be it to do things that they would never thought they could imagine doing like their own research projects or pursuing uh or going or, or going to uh, conferences or uh, attending different like collections of, of, of individuals to like sort of figure out what they want to do maybe different volunteer opportunities so i am a strong supporter and advocate of trying to undergrad students, as many opportunities as possible. So <laughs> I got
0: to say. <laughs> well, for two hours. <laughs> yeah, awesome, man. I mean, that was, that was great. I think, uh, you know, again, I think I, I just, I'm always blown away about like how complex, uh, Public land management and and ranch land management and grazing and all that can become, but it's not complex in like a, a boring bad way. It's complex in all these different interactions that you you would never think of. And I think um, this was a great conversation. I mean, you know, again, like I think people are going to be pretty blown away at uh, the depths of of the work that you're doing and how applicable it will be in the future. Um, thanks for coming on again. This is like a year in the making so we 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 really uh really put the pedal to the metal to get this done today so i appreciate it and uh i'm sure you'll enjoy your DD later so oh
1: yeah it's only i got in an hour i guess
0: <laughs>
1: i am still doing this
0: max you do you want to stop the recording or no way? You know, no they want, want to
1: hear it? about what's happening in my DD world i just okay. know they do yeah
0: i've been affected
1: <laughs> by rot grubs and we're desperately running across the map, trying to find someone who will heal me before I die. Because rock rubs tear you apart; they eat you from the inside out. And if your HP drops to zero, you die. There's no throwing saves; you die. Anyways, that's just, my current drama.
0: Just to clarify, this is Dungeons and Dragons, and not at all related to. Uh, anybody's
1: <laughs> you gotta have a, a a relief from from your your real life and fantasy is. Is where it's at.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Max. Do you do you have any final questions or statements or? Um, you know, before
2: you talked about fencing, is that the correct usage of that? Uh,
0: you can. Well, Vince
1: is the company. Virtual oh, fencing Vince is the,
2: the deal. So just virtual fencing. Yeah. Before you uh, really covered virtual fencing, I had some questions about it. Um, just how it related, like allocation, your allocation project, but uh, ever. I mean, you you pretty much covered every, everything I was going to ask. So, yeah. <laughs> good.
1: I, I'm a jabber. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good I'm thing. I'm glad you managed to sift through all my words and found what you needed.
2: <laughs> I think uh, after after hearing you today, I think virtual fencing is going to be like the future of learning <laughs> right there, like for real.
1: Yeah. And, and another thing to add on to it, it's like it, it's... It's something that we need to use with the current infrastructure. So it's going to be a big shift because originally it was like we had these fencing, we throw them in the fenced area and they just run around mm-hmm. and they graze depending on their you know, whatever areas they are more more interested in grazing. But you know depending on slope or elevation change or water sources, etc. In this case, we need to like reevaluate all of our landscapes, which is not. A job that can be simply attack, attacked by a rancher, like reapproaching by allotment or by collections of allotments, depending on who's you know what, what rancher owns what, but property is permitted to what. But understanding like how we can better approach building this landscape with the current current infrastructure because these fencings can be both. A useful tool, like the existing fencing, the existing barbed wire fencing, can be a useful tool to make sure that you guarantee no movement. But they can also be a hindrance if you don't know they're there, and you could be trying to move cattle to certain locations, are trapped, they can't do anything, and now they're stuck, and then they have to have a horrible experience to escape a trap location as you're making shifts, or maybe you need to reevaluate where water sources are you need to reevaluate how you can best plan where towers should go so you can get the best sort of coverage of an area so you can better manage those individuals. Cause I mentioned you need to have, they need to be within range of that tower to be captured. But like, say you have a very uh, rough terrain, you know, deep valleys or whatever, that's gonna be more difficult to send signals into if you're shooting them, you can imagine line of sight. You, know, if you have a mountain in the way mm. nothing's getting past that mountain you have a big dead zone so yeah. planning around dead zones or planning to overcome dead zones playing around existing fencing existing water sources because food a forage is, is an incentive for them to move the locations but water is a huge incentive especially in the southwest mm. to get them moving locations so like it's it, it can't be it can't be all on the ranch. this has to be An opportunity, (laughs) God, we gotta burn that word. has to be be an opportunity for uh, both agency personnel and these ranchers to once again sit down, inventory the infrastructure that they have on their, on their, their, on their, the permitted land they have, and then approach a better. Way of managing these
2: cattle. Yeah, absolutely. And, so it, it should be like a cooperative learning curve. Yes, learning curve type thing between agency exactly. and and rancher. Not just not just all on the rancher. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, I, it, I mean, it can't just be the rancher. The rancher is,
1: you know, he knows his operation. That's mm-hmm. he's an expert. In his operation. He's, he's he's got a great background and what he knows on the landscapes that he sees. But does he have a background in how how uh, certain species of grass grow? How certain soil is impacted? How all this this research that he doesn't he doesn't have a ton of information based off of that. Whereas forest service can have access to that, or you state cooperative extension can have access to that, and they can help you sort of cater and shape a plan in relation to your pastures. And so it's it, it's going to do two things. It's going to allow us to do more in a better systematic way, but it's also going to hopefully bring us together, which is in the end really what we really need. We need to have people who are there longer t- there for a longer term. You know, ranchers are there. They're gonna do a great job. They're gonna keep doing their work. We need to have agency personnel that are gonna be persistent sort of players on this landscape for a long period of time. And they have to they have to have you know a university involvement. And so I'm hoping that this sort of leads into that a big you know sort of gateway.
2: Awesome. Yep, yeah, I, I
0: love the concept. Perfect. All right. Well, everybody that listened, um, I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, like, like, uh, like we said previously. I mean, <clears throat> things are difficult. Uh, scheduling, especially. We are hoping to put a plan together to get back on some kind of a consistent schedule, but until that time's, time arrives, we are absolutely trying to put out episodes whenever we can get them. Uh, do interviews whenever we can get them and so Brandon was kind enough to help us put out an episode this week and it's it's, it was a great conversation and uh, if you do like the show uh, feel free to rate and review it on whatever platform you listen to Uh, and if you have any ideas about what you want to hear about you can contact us I'm going to be honest, I, ha- I used to check our email pretty regularly. I Nobody contacted us on the email, so I stopped. Uh, but we also do have that Twitter account and the Instagram account if you'd like to send us some feedback uh, directly. But thanks for tuning in.